Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. The justices will return to the bench on October 31st for another blockbuster sitting. And while the affirmative action cases against the University of North Carolina and Harvard are getting the most attention, the justices will also consider a major challenge to a 1978 law meant to stop the breakup of Native American families. So, Kimberly, before we bring on our guest, do you want to give a very quick intro to the case? Sure. So the 1978 law known as the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, uh, was meant to prevent Indian children, as they're referred to in the statute, from being taken from their homes. I think um, there's some legislative findings in that law which say that, you know, a disproportionately high number of Native children were being pulled from their homes because of not just overt discrimination, but because of misunderstandings with Um, you know, tribal culture and how they raise families. And so that resulted in a very high number of Native children in the foster care system and being adopted um, outside of tribes. That's been around since 1978, but uh, the Supreme Court is now going to hear a challenge brought by couples who attempted to, and some who did, adopt Native children, as well as uh, the state of Texas, who says that the law uh, forces states to do more than the federal government can actually tell it to do. So uh, let's bring on our guests to chat uh, to get a little deeper insight into what's going on here. So here to break down that case with us is Chrissy Ross Nemo, the Deputy Attorney General of the Cherokee Nation, which is one of more than 400 tribes across the nation that are arguing in support of ICWA. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me today. So I guess, you know, to kick us off, I was just wondering if you could describe for us what it is that the Indian Child Welfare Act was meant to do. Sure. It, it was passed in 1978, and um, the Indian Child Welfare Act was a result of um, basically community organizations. Um, grandmas and aunts and mothers in communities recognized that um, their children were not around. It followed um, different areas in history of the United States of separating Indian families. And that was movement of tribes uh, from their original homelands. It was putting children in boarding school, which we hear a lot about today. Um, And then followed by in the 60s and 70s, you know, the adoption scoop and then the state departments going in and removing children um, for alleged abuse and neglect. And it was, you know, several of these things happening over a couple of generations that they recognized that Indian communities were missing their children. So the law was passed in 1978. Um, Congress and the congressional findings that are part of the law state that the most vital resource to the continued existence of Indian tribes are their children. Um, but ICWA at its, at its very core is a family preservation statute. What ICWA is about is keeping children with their parents and requiring the state to um, help parents keep children from being removed for the, in the first place or help them get their children back in their home. If they can't be placed with their parents, then to place them in the home of a family member, um, Indian or non. Um, and if they can't be placed in the, in the home of a family member, to place them in a tribal home. Um, there are some other substantive and procedural provisions that apply to tribes directly. But again, at its core, it is a, a family preservation law. And so I wonder if you can give us a sense of how successful this law has been and sort of whether or not there's more work for it to do. 
So um, we have some data, but we we don't have a lot because we don't really do a, a good job on a on a state by state basis or on a national basis of um, tracking. There is some data out there. What we do know is that um, Indian children are still overrepresented in state foster care systems, as most minority children are. But um, we see, for example, um, in the state of Oklahoma, about 11 to 12 percent of the population of the state of Oklahoma are tribal citizens. But when we look at kids in foster care, um, some years it's as high as 30 percent of the kids in foster care are Native wow. children. I think that would be worse without ICWA. And I, I think it is working. Um, I think we have more work to do. And um, a lot of that is, you know, implementation. The law itself says that these things have to be done when children are in child custody proceedings in state court by both the state and by private actors. But the remedy for failure to follow ICWA is often just redoing something in an individual case. There's not, uh, mm-hmm. there's not a loss of funding for the state. There's not, uh, you know, you don't get attorney's fees if uh, in a lawsuit you say, oh, they violated ICWA and, um, you know, they messed up. So it is, uh, I, I think it's vital. I think we have more work to do. Um, but I do think that that we're getting better. I mean, we've seen states pass ICWA laws. And um, we had in 2016, the Bureau of Indian Affairs updated the federal regulations with ICWA. So it gave states more guidance. Um, we're seeing kind of a more uniform application. And uh, I, I think that the folks are finally starting to get that this is what's best for Indian children, Indian families, and Indian tribes. Yeah, I do want to talk a little bit more about um, those state laws and sort of what effect this uh, litigation in the Supreme Court could have. But first, I wanted to ask sort of a broader issue about ICWA. You mentioned that it's been around since 1978, and I know there this isn't even the first Supreme Court case um, where it's really at the heart of the, of the litigation. But I'm wondering, in some ways, did the Supreme Court invite this particular challenge. Um, I'm thinking here of, you know, there's a case, adoptive couple versus baby girl, in which the issue was not whether or not ICWA was constitutional, but um, some of the justices sort of raised that issue as a possibility. Um, And I mean, has that increased the litigation against the act? Or was this something that was going to happen anyway? No, so there's a line in the adoptive couple case that said, you know, if we were to find X, Y, Z, it could um, present equal protection challenges. And I think that um, that really was a a door opening for folks who um, sought to have ICWA, if not, you know, struck down altogether, narrowed. And um, we saw immediately following the... um, adoptive couple case and the promulgation of the regulations, we we saw some other challenges in federal court and in state court. Um, none of those went anywhere. And um, there were equal protection was, I would say, tangentially raised in some of those, but it was never kind of the focus. And But this was one that stuck. Hmm, That's interesting. Uh, You know, you mentioned the equal protection issue here. (laughs) I was describing this case to a panel that I was on recently, and I think I said something to the effect of, like, the decision below is, like, 
legally defined as a complete and total utter mess because it's hard to know what's going on. Um, But I do think this equal protection challenge is sort of like the big one. And it's one of these themes that we see in other cases at the Supreme Court this term, this idea that, you know, the Constitution doesn't allow for the consideration of race um, by by government and public institutions. Um, and that's very much an issue in this case. At least that's the way that the those challenging the law want to think about it. But you think about it a little bit differently. And I was just wondering if you could um, explain that to us. So, you know, our position is this case isn't at all about race because right. uh, we, have a, we have a line of cases starting with Morton B. Mancari from the Supreme Court that says when we're talking about Indian people, um, and I want to take a small tangent. I use the word Indian because the law uses the word Indian mm-hmm. and it means something. And specifically in ICWA, an Indian child is a child who is a member of a federally recognized tribe or a child who is eligible for membership in a federally recognized tribe and has a parent who is a member of a federally recognized tribe. So in order for the law to apply uh, apply to a child in a state court proceeding, it is very much tied, not very much, it is completely tied to membership in a tribe. And mm-hmm. we know from a line of federal court cases that when we're talking about, when, we're, when we have a law that talks about tribes as governments, or individual members or citizens of tribes, that that is not a uh, race-based classification. Um, And specifically when it comes to issues of tribal self-governance, culture, Indian land, some of those things that repeatedly courts have said, we don't, this doesn't raise an equal protection challenge because it's not race-based. It is a political status of member or citizen of a government, the, the tribal government. One question I had is, as we're going to look forward to the argument, is how to think about this case in the context of other recent cases involving tribes and Indian issues. Probably the biggest issue in recent years has been this dispute over Indian land from Oklahoma that involved a criminal issue, at least in the first instance. I'm wondering, do you view this ICWA case as part of a line having to do it all with that case and how the court will view it? Or do you view it differently? I I do. Um, And I think even in this case, it's really interesting the the arguments that were kind of the the most pushed by the plaintiffs have changed from the original case to what's now in front of the Supreme Court. And the, you know, equal protection is, um, is, is troubling. And we've talked about that. But in the most recent brief filed by the state of Texas, which is the last thing that's been filed in this case, um, this argument of whether or not Congress under their plenary power over Indians, which is, again, lines and lines of Supreme Court cases say this, um, the state of Texas is arguing based on, I think, the Castro decision that like in criminal law where Congress maybe doesn't have the power to tell states they can't prosecute non-Indians on reservations, that when it comes to family law, an issue that is reserved to the state under the under the Tenth Amendment and has, traditionally has been, that um, Congress's authority over Indians doesn't extend to legislating what states do in family law cases in state courts. That's the argument that the state of Texas, one of the arguments that the state of Texas is making. And it is um, it is pitting mm-hmm. um, Congress's authority over Indians against states' rights. 
So I'm really glad that you mentioned um, that Texas is involved in this case. There are a few other states that um, are on the side of challenging ICWA, but there are 23 states, I think is the count, plus the District of Columbia, who are urging the court to keep ICWA in place. And I'm just wondering how we should think about those, uh, the state involvement here, and in particular, how the breakdown among the native population fits within these states and where they're, where they're weighing in. Right. So, um, and interestingly, Texas is now the only um, plaintiff state in front of the Supreme Court. When the case was um, at the Ninth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit, there were two other, case, two other states right. Who didn't participate in seeking of cert and aren't aren't parties at this point? Um, there's also amicus by the state of Ohio um, against ICWA and Oklahoma. But interestingly, um, Oklahoma, where we are, um, where the Cherokee Nation is, who's a party of this case, um, they've they've switched their position in this case. In the Fifth Circuit, Oklahoma joined the uh, 24 other states that were supporting ICWA and in front of the Supreme Court, the uh, state of Oklahoma has now uh, supported Texas, and we had a change in. Um, attorney general who decides what briefs that uh, states join. So um, I, I will leave the uh, prophesizing there to, to why that happened. But yeah, I mean, you see you see other states that have very large native populations um, that have lots of Indian children in state custody, that have lots of tribes in their states that work well with these with these tribes saying, not only is ICWA good for children, it's good for tribal state relations. We work together um, to produce best outcomes. And then you have the state of Texas, who um, has two or three Indian tribes, I, I'm not for sure, um, relatively small, especially compared to their overall population, uh, native population. Actually, yesterday we were running numbers on, on cases. Cherokee Nation's the largest um, federally recognized Indian tribe in the country. I think that we probably have the most um, ICWA cases in state courts across mm-hmm. the country. We, we track those. Um, we have 16 cases in Texas, you know, compared mm-hmm. to 200 cases in the state of Oklahoma, compared to 40 cases in California. Um, so we know that when we're talking, first of all, when we're talking about the number of cases impacted in Texas. It's a very, very small number of their total caseload. Um, we also know from from other court cases that um Texas doesn't do a good job of child welfare otherwise. There is a a current pending federal case where Texas is under contempt orders because federal court has found that they violated the the civil rights of foster children because they've subject them to abuse and neglect. They've lost children. They've had children die in custody. And a federal court has said, you're not you're not meeting your responsibility to children in care. And therefore, you're in contempt because you haven't done the things the court has ordered where at the same time, Texas is saying, you know, this law, ICWA, is bad for children, bad for Indian children. And we have the the majority of the other states in in this country saying it, it's not bad for Indian children. It helps them. Um, it's not overly burdensome. It's, it's not commandeering. Um, so, it, you know, I, I think those those arguments and those positions of those other states simply speak for themselves. Mm. Uh, you mentioned earlier state laws. I think it's almost nearly half, I think, of the states have codified uh, ICWA into their own state laws. And so 
Uh, I wonder if you know, what does it mean for those laws if the federal legislation is overturned? I mean, do those just stay in place, um, potentially kind of blunting the effect of an, a court ruling overturning ICWA? Yeah, so that's a really complicated question. I'll, yeah. try to keep, I'll try to keep it short. First of all, the laws are very different. There's only a handful that are truly kind of comprehensive that have codified all of ICWA. An example for in Oklahoma, we there are some additional protections, but it doesn't automatically sweep in the rest of ICWA. Um, and gotcha. it it also depends on how the court rules, right? If if the court decided that ICWA um, unconstitutionally commandeered state resources, then states are absolutely still free to do whatever they want under state law. Um, however, if it's an equal protection challenge, then you have, you know, under state constitutions, are states allowed to provide, you know, laws that treat um, Indian individuals or Indian tribes differently? Um, so I, you know, I think on its face, none of them would automatically be struck down. I think if any, if there's any portion of ICWA that is struck for any reason, then you may see state court cases challenging those state laws in the various um, states for whatever reason, again, other than the the pure commandeering argument. Mm -hmm. So I guess my last question is, um, what's at stake here? And it's sort of twofold. So, uh, you know, right in there baked into ICWA and, you know, the legislative findings are that children are the most important resource of tribes. And so obviously it could have a big impact on children um, that I would love for you to talk about. But also just looking more broadly at tribal sovereignty, what's at issue here if the Supreme Court were to strike down ICWA? You know, I... And I say that I don't say this dramatically. I mean, the existence of Indian tribes are at issue because some of these arguments are very, very dangerous. And if the court, for example, um, is inclined to believe that Congress doesn't have plenary authority over Indian tribes, um, every federal law that deals with Indian tribes is at least you know, subject to challenge. Um, whereas we think a lot of those are very settled, clear areas of law and I think that's why you've seen such a tremendous tribal support in this case. ICWA is very, very important to tribes. Um, it is probably the one area of federal Indian law that tribes unanimously agree on because hmm. other federal Indian laws, some tribes like them, some tribes don't, depending on how they affect them. Um, I've never heard a, a tribe as a whole, a tribal leader say, we don't support ICWA or we don't, you know, we think ICWA is bad for Indian children. And what is, you know, what is at stake for individual children and individual families that if without regard to tribal citizenship, a state is allowed to remove a child um, from their home and then just under state law decide under what circumstances are reunited, under what circumstances they're placed in a foster home. I mean, we know what happened to those children because a lot of those children are adults now and they say that, you know, my life. I was harmed because I was taken from my family. I was taken from my tribe. I was moved far away. I was put in a home that knew nothing about where I come from, um, my culture, my religion, my history, the history of my people. And we know that that harms children. There's both, you know, data as well as just individuals giving their stories out there about that. We have in this case, we have amicus briefs filed by people who were taken from their families. We also have people who are reunited with family members and, and their tribe because of ICWA, and we're hearing those stories. So it is, um, 
you know, I think this is arguably one of, um, if not the most important Indian law case cases in in front of the Supreme Court in kind of the modern era. So that was a good interview. Yeah, it was interesting to me what she said about the Castro Huerta case that right. was decided five to four, not in the tribe's favor. So wondering if it's going to be a different lineup this time or whether that's the hurdle that they have to get past, assuming they even do necessarily have Gorsuch on their side, which I guess we'll have to wait and see. Right. It seems like that equal protection argument that they're making that this is not a case about race. This is a case this is totally different. This is about political affiliation is one that's directed just right toward Justice Gorsuch and for him to be able to go into the conference room and, you know, pull as many people to his side as he can. That I mean, when I read that, I was like, mm-hmm. why don't you just like put a big arrow and Justice Gorsuch and circle it? And Right. And assuming that is what's happening and that there are the three Democratic appointees on the tribe side. Still a slight math issue, right? And that that puts them only at four. So it's as you say, if that is the situation, whether a fifth can be pulled over. Right. But, you know, and this is one thing that we've talked a lot about, Jordan, is we still really don't know where Justice Barrett is on tribal issues. She's split uh, pretty evenly. And, but, you know, the nature of her work on the Seventh Circuit and as a law professor, we just don't really know what she thinks about this issue that much. So um, potentially there's the fifth vote for them. Wonder if that argument about political affiliation will pull along some others as well. But um, there are some of that we definitely think won't go for this argument, not necessarily about equal protection, but some justices who are on sort of on record saying that the federal government just doesn't have the authority to do this. So I think probably Justices Thomas and Alito are not going to be in that five voting to uphold ICWA. So we'll be back next week with our sneak peek of the five cases that the justices will hear in their first week of the November sitting, including that affirmative action case that I mentioned at the top of the episode. And speaking of affirmative action, our colleague Matt Schwartz has an upcoming series on the Uncommon Law podcast about the affirmative action cases. So be sure to listen there. And until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, We'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos including me. And so somehow that's too much. Somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.